Hey, this is Mike and Tom from Ballpark Bros. You're listening to another great show on the Four Eyed Radio. Check us all out on FourEyedRadio.com. Starfleet Escape Podcast. Prepare for launch in three, two, one. Enjoy the ride. Welcome to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four Eyed Radio Network, where we escape into the Star Trek universe. This is episode 73 and is being recorded on October 11th, 2017. Today's topic, Spectral Scans, Star Trek Discovery, Episode 4, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not for the Lamb's Cry. Remember, this is a spoiler-filled episode. You have been warned. I'm Eric. And I'm Aaron. This episode is sponsored by Revenge Lover. Stand out from the crowd? For more information, visit revengelover.com and mention the podcast for 10% off your order. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Eric. I am so excited to talk about Star Trek Discovery this week. I know. It's probably the best episode so far. I would have to agree. It was definitely really action-packed and a lot happened. And it was also the longest Star Trek television episode since the original series. It was just under 50 minutes. That's insane. Yeah, because Enterprise, with, you know, all the commercials and stuff, yeah. the episodes were like 40 to 42 minutes. Right. So, a lot happened in this episode, and it just so happens to be Star Trek's second longest title. Right, yet it is a very wordy title. Yeah. <laughs> But before we get into talking about the episode, let's get into the news. So, Aaron, what's first up in the news? Shatner is beaming to the original series set tour. Ticonderoga, New York. For a special appearance at the Star Trek original series set tour next spring, Shatner, Star Trek's original Captain Kirk, will be on hand on May 4th and 5th, 2018, and is set to sign autographs, pose for photo ops, and participate in a unique meet-and-greet event and uh, question-and-answer session. I I kind of want to go to this. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. Hey, May the 4th. Um, oh, <laughs> My God, well, not with these ticket prices. Holy bajolies. Uh. So I'm looking at the article. There's a VIP Ambassador Platinum ticket, which you get to do a reception-style meet-and-greet for two hours. You can wander the sets at your leisure, and you will get the live on stage with William Shatner event and special question and session answer with fans the Platinum Ticket also includes a photo op and autograph along with guided set tour. For the Platinum Ticket, limited to 50 people, 860 bucks per person. That's insane. It is insane. Then they have the Captain's Gold Ticket, which you can still go to the meet and greet on Friday, and you get a William Shatner autograph and the set tour, but that's still 500 bucks. Yeah, I don't, I don't like Shatner that much. <laughs> I don't uh, either. <laughs> spend that much money. Yikes, and even just a photo op with him is 160 bucks, And the autograph by itself is 80 
So are, so, they, are they, like, not paying him anything to come up? You know, even with the captain's gold ticket, they limit that to 50 and that's the $500 one. Mm-hmm. That's, like, $25,000 right there. And that's not to mention the 860 per person one that's limited to 50 If you round that up to 900 that's, you know, 45000 bucks. That's a lot, a lot of money. It is a lot of money. So, I guess if you really like William Shatner, you can go to this thing. But, man, I did not expect that to be, like, creation convention prices for one person. <laughs> oh, man, I wouldn't pay that much. Oh, no, no, no. To go to a creation event, either. No, not at all. So, next up... There is a statue of the late actor Anton Yelchin, which was unveiled in L.A. on Sunday, this past Sunday, the 8th. The statue is available for public viewing in Hollywood's Garden of Legends. It was created by sculptor Nick Mara and FX artist Greg Nicotero. Oh, that's cool. He's uh, He does stuff for The Walking Dead. Oh, very cool. And I did not hear about this until reading it just now. Uh, Zoe Saldana, Simon Pegg, and J.J. Abrams was also there. Right. And I'm looking at the picture of the statue now. I think it's a very good likeness of him. Mm -hmm. And I really like the plaque. It's a really nice memorial. Right. And they also have a mural... It was signed by fans at the 2016 Las Vegas Star Trek convention. Mm. And that was also on display during the service. I think it's a, a nice way to honor his memory because he was really gone too soon. Uh, definitely. And the, the statue does look great because, I mean, I've seen statues that look nothing. Like the person <laughs> they're trying to portray. And, and this, this looks uh, spot on. Yeah, it looks really good. So in our next news item, CBS chairman and CEO Leslie Moonves, or Moonves, I don't know, he's talking up the importance of Star Trek Discovery, saying a lot is writing on Star Trek Discovery and future seasons are likely. So he was recently quoted, quoted today actually at the time we record this, in a Bloomberg Businessweek article on the future of CBS All Access. And he says, Looking at the future of CBS streaming and over-the-top content, industry jargon for internet-only media, is a very important part of it, he says. There's real upside for our company to have all access be successful. There's a lot riding on Star Trek. And based on this report and industry analysis, CBS's plan is to target niches of passionate fans to spur the growth of CBS All Access. And it appears to be working because Bloomberg stated that All Access has racked up about 2 million customers. The average age of its subscribers is almost 20 years younger than the typical primetime CBS viewer, whose median age is 61. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, according to Nielsen. Hey, we've always joked that it's the old person's network, okay? That, yeah, it's true. So executives say that with the help of Discovery, all access can blow past its target of 4 million customers by 2020, and future seasons are likely, Moonves says. So that is awesome. Yeah, because I was actually just thinking about this today, 
if there isn't a second season, I know I won't keep my subscription to All Access. I will only, I'll like add it when Survivor season is on mm-hmm. and then I'll drop it. Right. But there was another thing where Alex Kurtzman, who is an executive producer on Discovery, he warned that a second season of Discovery may not be available until early 2019. Ouch. I don't know if... (laughs) I feel like they'll lose a lot of subscribers during that time. Yeah, unless, you know, they can create some other content. Because this season is going by really fast right now. It is. When Star Trek Discovery Season 1 ends, and that'll be probably in early March. It'll be like February or... Because if it comes back in January, it'll be like late February, early March when it ends. That means we'll have to wait almost a year for the second season. Are you a Rick and Morty fan? I am. So... How'd you feel about that wait between the second and third season? Was this something that you could handle with Star Trek? Well, I will say that there's other shows that have to wait a long time between seasons. I think the biggest one is the BBC series Sherlock. There was a wait time that they had to wait. I think there's almost three years between one of the seasons. Mm. So whenever someone says, hey, can you wait for a show? I'm like, yeah, I can wait. I mean, if Sherlock fan has to wait two to three years between seasons because they have two huge actors, yeah, I can wait a year for more Discovery. And I feel like I could wait because I know the wait would be worth it because this series got delayed a couple times the first season. And... I'm okay with the delays as long as it makes the season better. Like, Mm -hmm. you can tell that this show was not rushed. Like, they put thought into the story. The effects are as about as polished as you can make it. It looks like a movie. Right. So you're going to have almost a movie time frame for production. And I would not want them to, to rush it, you know? Right. I would be okay with a wait between seasons of Star Trek Discovery, but I would almost want them to maybe create another show that can go in between Star Trek Discovery's, you know, off years. Right. So, like, so if, another, another Star Trek type show? Yes, another Star Trek show, period. And, okay. you know, we had those rumors where... You know, at first it was going to be an anthology series. Right. Well, why don't you make the anthology series in between the years of Discovery? So you can have, like, one year it's a new season of the anthology. Second year it's the new new season of Discovery. And that way you can keep all your subscribers on CBS All Access. Because I feel you, like, if they... If they don't, if we have to wait a whole year for another season, I do feel like unless they start bringing more original content to the all access, they're going to lose a lot of subscribers. And I would be okay with another science fiction genre show as long as it's something that would catch my interest enough to 
keep all access. Right. Because I paid a year in advance for all access for a discount. Yes. And if I know that I'm not going to get Star Trek next September, when it comes up time to renew, I'm not going to do it. Yeah, and then you'll just wait till it comes back. Right. And that's a shame. I mean, if they if they're on this road to 4 million subscribers next year, they'll lose the momentum. Yeah, definitely. And maybe with their seeing all this success with Discovery, maybe they can bring another Star Trek series or maybe do a mini series of Discovery like a side story or Something where maybe they don't necessarily have to do a full season, but something to keep the momentum going, or a docu- documentary, like a Star Trek documentary, or just something. Because uh, how about a a cartoon? I'd be okay with another animated series as as long as it's something that can fill the gap. Right. Then I would also be more likely to keep my subscription. Right, most definitely. But this is something that they they say that a lot's riding on it. But again, they have to keep in mind that with streaming services like this, it's all in the, the demand of the fans. So if there's nothing that they want, they'll drop it. And when that thing that they want comes back, they'll sign up. So they really have to be aware that this is not going to be a constant stream of people. Right. I mean, someone must know that, <laughs> I hope. I would hope so, too. But I think it's fantastic that the demographics are skewing lower than their TV viewers. And that's to be expected. I mean, people who stream are going to be younger anyway. Right. So I'm glad that it seems like a lot of people are enjoying Star Trek Discovery. And, hey, if we get more Star Trek, I'm all for it. Uh, yeah, me too. I enjoy new Star Trek, and it's kind of sad that we only get 15 episodes. I, I want, like, 24 episodes. Well, they did say, like, I, I know a couple of the executive producers said that they have a very specific story that they're telling, and with streaming shows, are between 10 to 15 episodes anyway. Right, right. No, I understand that, but, I mean, I know we don't want filler episodes, but it'd be cool to have like a, a lower decks type of episode of Discovery. I think that would be cool. Yeah, or maybe like I said, maybe do a Discovery mini series, like a half season, maybe call it like season one point five or something. And yeah. you know, maybe focus a different perspective and you don't have to go crazy with the effects or anything. Maybe make it more of a bottle type show and focus in on some of the characters. That would be cool if like even Tilly was the star of that or something. Yeah, yeah that, that'd be cool. Even though if, if it was a Lower Decks type of series where it's characters that aren't main characters that are given more attention. Like that uh, guy that was on the bridge with that weird head. Like, how, how does he get a shirt on? Um, It probably... <laughs> It's, like button up. It's, it's a button up shirt. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That guy was weird. Yeah, um like like I've said before in other episodes that we've done, I appreciate the alien looking aliens. I think it's very I do cool. Too. Very cool. I do too. But I didn't know what to call him. Is he like a big 
like insect peach head? Like what? <laughs> I don't know what he is. I don't know. I don't even know the gender. Who knows? <laughs> we'll never know. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Unless unless there's a lower decks type of episode. Yes. Uh, but how would he even talk? <laughs> and be like, oh, he must. <laughs> oh, he must speak English through a translator. Because uh, maybe, yeah, yeah. Know if he had a mouth, it just looked like. <laughs> yeah, that would be interesting. I don't even know what that was. Yeah, you look cool. I was like, dude, what are you? <laughs> <laughs> so I guess let's move on to our. Would you buy it? Cool, Aaron. Would you buy this product? I'm leaning towards no, even though it's very cool. I'm also leaning towards no, even though it is really cool. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the Star Trek The Next Generation USB Warp Core Car Charger. This retails for 40 bucks. It's a Think Geek creation and exclusive. So according to Eric Dewey, you know it's going <laughs> to suck. It has blue light pulses pulses vertically when it's plugged in. And there's an on-off switch for light in case you don't want to waste the dilithium crystal. <laughs> uh, so it basically pulses just like in the show. There's two USB charging ports, 2.1 amps each, enough to charge two tablets simultaneously. And it's compatible with anything that charges via USB, iPhones, smartphones, iPads, tablets, uh, GPS, etc. So long as you have the cable. It sits in your cup holder and plugs into your 12-volt vehicle power adapter, a.k.a. the cigarette lighter. I mean, it's cool to, like, think that, oh, hey, my car has a warp core, ha, ha, ha. But, first off, this takes up a space in your cup holder. Right. And... When you're like me and, you know, I have my wife and I'm the one driving everywhere and, you know, we go get drinks, this, I would be constantly tossing this in the back seat, And it just seems like something extra that you don't really need. Mm-hmm. And for 40 bucks, I'm not paying it for a fancy light, you yeah. know? Yeah, I agree. I What I've seen in the past, and I think it was a Think Geek April Fool's Day product a yeah. uh, a warp core lamp i feel like i would pay money for a warp core lamp as opposed to this a warp core lamp would be hilarious and if it made the sound too like that low mm. rumble yeah i would fall asleep to that right very soothing it is very soothing on youtube there's like a 12 hour clip of that that just constantly repeats like the the warp core rumble. Oh, I've I've downloaded the impulse engine hum to soothe me to sleep. Very nice. Yes, but yeah, we'll have the link in our show notes. But like everything, it's on thinking. Right. <laughs> There's got to be more products aren't out there that aren't on thinking. I mean, come on. I'm sure there is, but this is just so much easier. It's it's very easy. Yeah. So let's go into the topic of the show, Spectral Scans, Star Trek Discovery, Episode 4, The Butcher's Knife Cares Not For The Lamb's Cry. Alright, first off, do you think that the butcher is Lorca, and the lamb's lamb's cry is the tardigrade? Huh. 
I, uh, I don't know. I think I, that's what that's referring to. I don't know. Because uh, I could see the Butcher being Lorca. I could also see the Butcher being the Klingons and the Lambs being the colonist. Oh, see, maybe it works on multiple levels. Yeah. Either way, it's a really cool title. Oh, yeah, mo- most definitely. It definitely feels like an original series title. It, it really does. It really does. And the longest title is from the original series, and that's For the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky. Of course, we don't know the what the later Star Trek Discovery episodes will be called. Right. So maybe, maybe that title won't stand for much longer. Could be. So, first off, let's tackle, I think, the most shocking part of the episode. Oh, definitely. And that is Landry's death. Aaron, what do you think about Landry's death? Well, it definitely shows that no one in the show is safe. She seemed like she was going to be a major cast member. A major oh, yeah. In the, in the two episodes that she was in, I mean, this is akin to Tasha Yar's death. Sort of. Uh, actually, it's interesting. The two female um, security officers, both in the first season. Yeah. Oh, too soon. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm hoping that we see her in a later episodes, maybe in a Lorca dream sequence. Oh, maybe. Yeah, it's interesting because Aaron Harberts, he's one of the executive uh, producers he teased that there would be more of her on After Trek before this episode aired. And I'm wondering if that was just a misdirection. Because the next episode, she's dead in the first half hour. Right. But something that we were going to discuss about the Mirror Universe episodes that were confirmed that were going to happen, maybe she will be in those episodes. I could definitely see that. My my feeling is is that obviously the death was her own fault. That was oh. all on her. Yeah, most definitely. But I wish we got more of an arc with her character because it was pretty clear that she was jealous towards Burnham for Lorca's attention. That was very heavily implied, especially at the end of episode three when she was telling Lorca that she would do anything for him, any time, which implied, again, it's all implied, but implied that they were in a pretty deep relationship. Right. And I wish we just had an episode between that and her death, maybe to like build up that a little more. Twice she almost like made fun of Burnham or put right. down her Vulcan mannerisms. Right. In this episode, she said, God, I hate Vulcan proverbs. Yeah. And from the beginning, she was always just a real hard ass. And maybe, because we know that Lorca's picking the best and the brightest, so maybe he picked one of the most ruthless security officers in Starfleet. Mm. So I could see that being the case, because I'll be honest, I'm not that sad that she's gone (laughs) right because i don't know how much of that i've i could take you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it seemed almost to me one-dimensional in a way like that 
that was the only thing going on for her character because we didn't know anything personal about her. And it was pretty one dimensional for a security officer. Like, yeah, we, you know, we got to find out how this, you know, how this thing kills and all that stuff. And it was almost laughable in a way and how forceful she was to check up on Burnham. And again, remember this episode takes place in the span of six or seven hours. Right. So her like constantly checking up on, on Burnham was just laughable. And by hour two, like the second time she stepped in, it was like, all right, we're just going to lop off its claw. And yeah, but do you need to open the pen? And what did she think a phaser was going to do anyway? Because we already knew that it could resist phaser fire. Right. Right. She, wasn't thinking, obviously. No, and so I don't want a security officer on the ship that doesn't think and can strategize and listen and respect the comments of crew members. I don't care if they're I don't care if they're a, a mutineer or not. If someone is the best at what they do and Lorca trusted Burnham enough to say, All right, this project is yours you're the scientific person. You need to weaponize it. I I don't know. And another interesting thing I thought was that we never actually saw Lorca tell Landry about the assignment. Oh, yeah. So part of me was like, was she doing that behind his back just to push Burnham along to please Lorca? Because mm. he seemed... Like, there was no emotion when she died. It was just like, all right, you better make sure her death's worth it. Get it done. Interesting. I don't know. I, re I read it differently. I thought he was he seemed a little down about it, at least. I, I don't know. I mean, I was only able to watch the episode once. I, I tried to watch it this morning on using the mobile app and got through 17 minutes before the app decided not to work anymore for me. Yikes. Um, yeah, so... I didn't get that far in the second rewatch. Now, what's this uh, Anthony uh, rap comment that you have? Okay, so I saw someone post this on Twitter, and I had to ask the person where... Because this looks like a Facebook screenshot. Yes. And that person referred me to another person, and that person said they found it on Tumblr. Okay. Uh, Which is the cesspool of the internet nowadays. Yeah. But... But according to this screen cap, Anthony says that about Landry's death, this is an interesting and unfortunate coincidence. Landry was initially conceived as a male role, always written as a character who would be dying. As they began casting, the producers thought that it would be great to give what would be a traditionally male role uh, to a woman instead, and then cast a wide net in terms of ethnicity. So it does have the unfortunate optics of looking like all Asian females are destined to die on the show, when in reality, there has been concerted effort to populate our show with more women than would normally be seen, and more people have a wide range of ethnic backgrounds. And I definitely noticed that on the bridge this episode. Mm -hmm. uh, we had that African-American con officer. Right. There's definitely a, an equal, if not more, female presence on the bridge. 
and it's not going unnoticed. Like I notice those things and it's cool. And that bridge is really diverse. I mean, you got handsome, cool looking surfer dude that they cut to a cool, a few times, but then you've got like the robot female Arium. And then you've got the con officer. Uh, the con officers in the front are, are both women you know, the the one that was on the Shenzo, and now she has a robot eye and oh, yeah, yeah, thing yeah. on her head. Right. The Borgans so, went there. God. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, Landry's death, I guess it was shocking because I thought she was going to be in this show a lot longer than she was. <laughs> right. And um, a- another interesting thing I wanted to point out that might be related to Landry's death was that... The only main cast member that they've touted on social media, but we haven't seen yet, is the actor uh, Shazad Latif, who plays Lieutenant Ash Tyler. And I came across an older Truck Corps article. I did not know that he was going to be a prisoner of war. So are we going to meet him in the next episode when Lorca is captured? And I'm thinking he might be a replacement as it's mentioned that he is a Starfleet security officer. Interesting. Okay. And I know we just said next episode, but that teaser was crazy. Like, we already have Harry Mudd now. Right. And we see that Lorca gets captured and tortured. Right. And And I was like, whoa. Yeah, and they, like, messed with his eyes. So I don't know if that's a flashback or not. Yeah, that could definitely be a flashback. Because of his eye injury. Yeah. Because he said it was uh, a battle injury. Well, he said it was a battle injury, I think. But who knows what that yeah. is. And maybe it happened in that six-month time frame. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. And who knows, if it's a flashback, you know, maybe we'll see more more of the Klingons. And it's just, it's very exciting. Oh, yeah, definitely. But, yeah, a, a lot came of, of Landry's death and... I'm sad to see the actress go because she's such a, she's been in a a lot of other genre shows. She was in Battlestar Galactica. And so, yeah, I hope we do get like a flashback or maybe how she was tied to Lorca or something, but rest in peace, Landry. So next up, I just wanted to mention the simulated battle scene when Saru and Burnham walk off the turbo lift together. Yes. It it looked like they were under attack because Saru was just like kind of like gazing around like, oh, what's going on? Yeah, it seemed like they were both surprised at what was happening. Right. And I thought it was really cool. We kind of got a look at the birds of prey, the Klingon birds of prey there that are definitely uh, different than the traditional ones. I couldn't really see what was happening with them. They do have the wings. Oh, yeah, they definitely have the wings. I, they look more organic than yes. the traditional ones. Yeah, I thought it was a very cool effect, a very cool simulation. I liked how when the simulation was over, you know, you got that grid pattern on the screen, and it kind of faded back to the real display. Right. And I just thought it was very cool. It's definitely a way to get to keep the crew on their toes, especially during a a war effort. And for a crew that 
is mainly science and they're they're not accustomed to war and it would make sense to have these battle drills and when Lorca went off of the bridge with Burnham he told Saru to keep them running the simulation again and again until they get it right right so I thought that was very well done yeah I did too and it seemed like he was disappointed in Landry at that moment yeah which takes place before you know her big push to keep burnham on track Mm -hmm. so again that's more subtle motivation for her to really push burnham and she even said oh yeah Lorca's on the warpath well he wasn't that angry but they wanted to get it done so yeah I, i think it all ties together quite nicely and yeah, that was a subtle way to, you know, inform what was going to happen in the rest of the episode. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's very mm, captainly his reaction to their failing of the simulation? Not if he's someone that's seen war before. Mm. It's pretty obvious that he took over Discovery to make it part of the war effort. And so he's disappointed that they're not as experienced as he is. So I think he's definitely frustrated. I don't think it's the sign of a good captain, you know, when being that disappointed in your crew, but he's under pressure to win a war, especially since they're the only, like he mentioned, he's like, we are the only spore based drive ship in existence now. And he said, we have to be ready because we can go anywhere and we have to be ready because we will not have any support. So he's trying to push them and he's trying to bring home the point that they need to do better. Right. It may not be great for morale, but it'll sure get them off their butts. I think. Right. What I kind of wish discovery had since it's going to be doing these potentially going behind enemy lines to to confront the Klingons, some kind of uh, fighter shuttle Uh. that could be used to help out a little bit. Yeah, that, that would be cool, especially since the Klingons have that. They have these little attack fighters, these smaller birds of prey. And we saw when that Cleave ship took out the Admiral ship in the first couple episodes... It was launching all these like mini fighters. So yeah. it would be cool if, if Starfleet, you know, developed a small fighter type of shuttlecraft. Yeah, but I... again, they're, they're not geared for war. They, they've they right. been pretty peaceful since, you know, the hundred years that the United Federation of Planets has been in existence at this point in, in time. Right. So let's talk about the main focus of this episode, which was... The, the tardigrade, the spore drive, and the really cool effect with with the hull. Right. So, I mean, we finally have a reason for the shape of the hull with the those cutouts. Mm-hmm. And so we learn that it's necessary for the spore drive. So I think that will quiet down some of the haters out there. <laughs> uh, although they probably aren't watching the show, so... They don't know. Right. But <laughs> uh, there's a reason. So so yes. stop. And uh, 
I, I love that the hole was rotating. It, it, it was very cool. And it's not just the outer ring, but part of the inner ring was spinning too. Not the whole thing, just a middle portion of it. Right. So one thing I'm wondering about, is it just the upper hull part of that's spinning? Or is it like all the decks in between that's also spinning? Know what I mean? Yeah, you mean like, I think the outer ring is definitely spinning because there was a shot in the teaser where we get this cool perspective shot like you were sitting on the hull and it was like rotating towards the neck of the ship. Okay. So... Oh, what I I mean is like... That uh, upper portion that's spinning? Like in between the outer hull, the Mm -hmm. the hull, so like... The decks, so the decks in between, if those are stationary and if it's just the outer hull on top that's spinning in the those sections. Like, almost like the skin of yeah, the... Yeah, right, right, like the skin... Oh, of... like the, the outer hull. Right. I would like to think so, because that would get very disorientating if you were in those decks. Right. So, yeah, I think, I think the outer... Like, there's an outer hull and an inner hull. And, yeah, I could see the outer hull being the thing that spins uh, because in that way it's almost like a generator, like it's spinning up. Right. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that, yeah. Okay. Because I was thinking it was either that or that part of the ship just isn't inhabited by anything except some kind of machinery. But there's windows on it. So oh, the windows on the parts that are spinning? I, I think so. Oh, I'll have to okay. look at the ship again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was hoping to see that in my rewatch. That didn't happen. <laughs> well, it, it just it happened so fast. Right, and right. There was one part of the effect where it looked like the whole ship at one point just, like, rotated on that axis. Yeah. And I don't think that the whole ship is literally spinning. I think it's an optical effect of the drive in use. Like some kind of displacement that's causing it to look like that's happening. Yeah, kind of like when ships in Star Trek warp and it looks like they're stretching into affinity before they snap. Right. I think that's the same kind of visual effect that they were going for, but spinning. Okay, yeah. And, I mean, yes, there are... Two, literally two parts of the ship at, that spin, but then it looked like it was rotating on the other axis as well. Like the whole ship was rotating on like the X axis. You get what I'm saying? Yes. Yes. So I think that part is an optical effect of the spore drive in use. Mm-hmm. Like before it snaps into the jump. Right. Because when it exit the jump, it just kind of like drops a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like, it blinks into existence and just drops a bit. Yeah. So it's not spinning when it comes out of that. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about how the tardigrade is connected. Right. So we learned that the equipment that the Glen had was used to directly connect to the tardigrade to use the tardigrade calculate the destination there's a piece of equipment that has all known star charts and you use that to basically force cross-reference right and you use that to force the tardigrade to 
go or tell the spores that you want to go there. Yes. And the equipment that's in the the glass pod, I, I forget what they call that, but that's basically the interface to connect the tardigrade uh, nervous system to the computer yeah, and to have that in- information. Right, and it definitely looks painful. Yeah. And I'm wondering if ultimately it was abandoned because of ethical reasons. I could see that happening because... You know, a lot of people seem to be forgetting that we've had this type of thing happen before in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And it happened in Voyager with the wonderful two-parter Equinox. And we found out in that episode that Captain Ransom was using these subspace creatures and essentially sucking their life force to get these incredible warp jumps. So we've had this th- kind of thing happen before in Star Trek. And the reason Janeway went after the Equinox was because of the ethical implications. You cannot subject a sentient species or any species to that kind of treatment just to get what you want. It's not the Starfleet way. It's not the Federation's way. Right. And in the last episode, I kind of linked Lorca to Ransom, and this kind of does it again. Even though uh, Lorca wasn't the one to initially come up with this uh, solution, it's obviously going to to continue with him. Now, what I found fascinating was that they introduced this tardigrade species, and Burnham found out that the reason it was on the Glen was because the Glen had all of their mushroom stores dried and they were in a lower cargo hold and there was no hull breaches there was nothing that would suggest that the tardigrade forced its way into the ship so my thinking is that and and we see it because they show in the episode that you know it's a symbiotic relationship the not only can the tardigrade communicate with the spores it also feeds off of them and I think that it can use the network on its own. It can basically teleport on the mycelium network to any point. So I think it found a greater concentration of spores that was on the Glen and was able to teleport into the Glen. And that's why they detected an intruder, but there was no outward damage that it forced its way in. Right, and if the species is so, uh, I'm guessing the species is going to be elusive. So yes. maybe another reason why this spore drive doesn't continue is because they only ever find this one person or one creature, creature. of the species. Yeah. Maybe it's endangered. That's yeah. another thing. Yeah. What if? What if they don't find anymore? Then. You know, you wouldn't be able to use a drive because the whole central network of the, of the drive is that creature. And without it, it's so dangerous. We had statements say that they ran into an undetectable uh, hawking uh, radiation firewall. So that's kind of some terminology with black holes and, and this and that. So it's just, it's very dangerous to use i mean the 
the whole entire crew of the Glen died. And right. Starfleet would not risk an entire crew of people on an accident just to get somewhere faster. They wouldn't do it. Just from a safety standpoint, it's it's a bad idea. Right. Yeah, I mean, how it, many ships can you lose until you right. say, okay, I guess we're done with this? Exactly. And especially during a war effort that they're in now. You know, it's you can't just pump these ships off an assembly line when there's so many resources that it takes to do that during a war effort. Right. Now, my question is, why did the Glen not share its discoveries with the Discovery? And I started thinking about this, and I'm wondering if it's like, you know, because they were two independent science teams Mm -hmm. that they wanted to come up with their own independent conclusions and solutions. Mm -hmm. That's a very scientific method way to do things. When two groups are researching the same thing, you don't want to cross pollinate the data because you want to come up with different ways to solve a problem. Right. And I I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, It was just too bad that their logs were corrupted because they could have come up with the solution a lot faster. But I'm glad that mysteries are being solved Mm -hmm. as they're coming up. This was a mystery in the third episode, and we've already solved most of it in the fourth. So it feels like they're just continuing to move forward. But again, now we know why Aaron Harbert said in the last episode of after track of this tardigrade is a very important piece of the puzzle and the story going forward. And I liked how it reflects Burnham in a way, because Burnham tells Landry that the tardigrade, you can't judge the actions of a creature or something based on one episode of its past. And She's not only talking about the tardigrade, she's telling Landry about herself, too. Like, Mm. hey, you can't judge me just because of this one thing I did wrong. Right. Like, I'm a whole nother person. So, there's a great metaphor between the tardigrade and Burnham. And I think it's fantastic writing. Oh, no, I agree with you. I, I think this is great Star Trek. And this is classic Star Trek because... It's It feels like Devil in the Dark with the Horda. You know, are we going to hurt another species just because we don't understand it? And for this tardigrade, are we really, are we really willing to kill off a species that might be endangered just to win a war? Like, that's not what Starfleet is about. That's not what the Federation is about. Right. So... I love the ethical dilemmas that are going to be coming up. Right, yeah, and like you said, that's definitely at the core of what Star Trek is, looking at ethical situations. Exactly. So, why don't we talk about the Dilithium mining colony? Oh, so we have another Star Trek trope here. Yes. We have the hero ship being the only ship within range, or the only ship with the ability to reach a destination to save the day. Yeah, it's highly frustrating, and I really wish they would get past that trope. Because, mm-hmm. first of all, this is an ongoing war effort. Admiral Cornwall said 
that this one facility of Corvan 2 supplies 40% of the dilithium that the Federation uses or that Starfleet uses. So with something that's almost half of your dilithium supply, that should be well guarded and not just by easily destroyed patrol ships, like they said. Mm -hmm. I think this makes Starfleet look incompetent. It's like the first battle of Sector 001, where the Borg goes through the Mars defenses, and then it's like, oh, I guess that's it. Uh, No other ships. Uh, I mean, really? There's no other ships that are in Sector 001? There should be tons of starships. There should be the most ships. (laughs) Right. You have ships being built. Yeah, that could go into emergency effect. Right. And the same thing in Star Trek Generations with the Enterprise B being christened. Uh, Yeah. And then it being the only ship. And it wasn't even near... The Enterprise (laughs) B was at Earth. And it was the only ship that could go to the Nexus. How is that possible? That that makes no sense at all. It doesn't. And... It really doesn't make sense that this one facility... I 40% of your dilithium. Even Lorca says that that would cripple the fleet if that was destroyed. So, I'm wondering, is this key facility close to the Klingon border? It should be even more well-guarded than it is. Right. And if it's not close to the Klingon border then how are the Klingons getting so deep into Federation space, especially since they don't all have cloaking technology? It's just the one ship. Right. So that was my biggest gripe about the whole episode, was Um, that, Yeah. I mean, 40% of your dilithium, and you've only got a couple patrol ships? You're six months into a war. There should be, like, at least five starships there just patrolling the sector. Come on. Yeah. No, I agree. And this probably fits into being what puts my quantum state into flux this week. Is definitely this. Yeah, it's this. It's this. It's this. <laughs> it, it, it's mine, too, because that was the most frustrating part of it. And another thing, why did the Discovery just warp out immediately after the Klingons are destroyed? Is this because they want the ship to remain classified in its abilities? And there was no guarantee that all the Klingon ships would have even been destroyed. Right. I know they took the time to calculate the blast yields and all that. That's why Lorca waited so long so that all the Klingon ships would be within range of the explosion. I get that. But it just seemed kind of bad to me that they didn't at least leave a shuttle or someone to, like, look after the colonists the miners right does that mean that they're gonna have to wait you know three more days for help from other starfleet ships Mm, i guess i guess the yeah it must be for keeping it a secret project because otherwise you would want to leave a clean on ship kind of scampering back home to tell them about this this ship that. Well, yeah, they, they definitely left no survivors, and, and I get why they warped out so quickly after they were destroyed, because they didn't want any witnesses. Right. But 
they couldn't have beamed down some supplies or some medical equipment, just anything. Mm. It just seems very odd to me. Because even if the, the other ships that were like 84 hours away or whatever it was, still, that's that's over 70 hours that they're still going to have to wait for help. And there's people that were hurt, and their facility was being destroyed. Right. So... To me, that just seemed very not Starfleet-like. Because until more ships get there, they're still defenseless. And when the Klingons don't hear from their dudes, they're going to be like, oh, well, we got to go back there. Right. But still, the whole Corvan 2 should have been much more guarded than it was. Right. It should have had... I don't know if it had any planetary defenses besides a defensive shield. But there should have been some kind of planetary weapons that could have been some, deployed. Yeah. Like, some kind of planetary defense grid, something. Yeah, like uh, ground-based cannons, like laser or phaser cannons that could have been used. I mean, granted, the Klingons would probably have taken them out, but it would have given them more of a fighting chance. Yeah, and I know for the sake of the story, you know, they had this time limit and... You know, whoa, they saved the day at the last minute. But, I mean, literally the last minute. But that's the thing. What if they didn't find out about the Tardigrade? What if it took longer for them to get there? I almost wanted them to to lose and, you know, make the situation even more dire. Because right now it just makes everything look like a big convenience plot. Right. So you, it would have been more realistic if they hadn't gotten there in time? Yes. I, I thought it would have been more shocking if they warped in and they realized, oh, man, we're too late. Because th that's another thing that bothers me in Star Trek, and it's another Star Trek trope, is that they can accurately predict when the shields are going down. Yeah. You don't know. The Klingons might bring in a heavier weapon that will do it faster. You can't predict that. Right. So, I don't know, it's another highly used Star Trek trope of the the shield counter, basically. And even happening with when they were just sitting there, it's like, what, so these three birds of prey can take down the Discovery shields in less than five minutes? You know, Saru was going, oh, 75%, oh, 65%, oh, 20%. And, like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know it's done for, for dramatic purposes, but it just makes it seem like the Discovery is not ready for battle. And you would think that they would have retrofitted the Discovery with more weapons. Just something. Yeah. yeah. No, I, and... I agree. I agree with you. <laughs> Before we get too nitpicky, um, yeah. let's talk about the, the Klingons this episode. Yes, so the survival of Takuma's ship. We learned that the ship has been stranded for six months. The six months that had passed. All the other Klingon ships that were there just left it. And uh, we find out that the Klingons eat the dead body of Captain Giorgio to survive. Yeah, so since when do Klingons eat humans? See, I, don't, I think it was more of they needed to to survive than I'm going to eat my enemy. You know what I mean? Yeah, and... And that was my thing. It's like, did they do this just for desperation because they were hungry? Or was it more of the, like, the literal, I'll eat the heart of my enemy kind of thing? Mm. Because Laurel said that Voke was delighted and was scraping her skull clean, basically, 
which is gross. Right. And I I know my wife was very repulsed by that. And I'm like, not all Klingons do that. (laughs) (laughs) And my thing was, is that did they put Takumva on the outside of the ship or did they eat him too? (laughs) Oh, interesting. I don't think they would. I don't think they would eat their own. Yeah. At least I don't think so. I mean, six months is a long time. And I know the captain wouldn't have fed the entire crew for that six months. Sure. So I feel as though it was a last resort when they ran out of rations. I did like that we caught up to the Klingons in that six month time period. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very realistic time frame considering their circumstances. They have only have one crew and the ship was massively damaged. The whole head section blew off of the ship. Mm -hmm. So I think it was realistic for the crew that they have and that all of the resources that were in the asteroid field of the uh, battle, of the binary stars. Mm-hmm. I think it's very realistic that it would take them that long to scavenge what they need, maybe mine the asteroids for the raw materials. And it would have been a lot of hard work to reattach the head of the ship back to the main body. Right. So I definitely think it was a, a realistic time frame. I think it it is refreshing to see some realism in in Star Trek, and I'm glad that there were consequences to that battle and the fact that they were trying to repair the ship because it's their essentially their Messiah's ship. It's very well done on what they're doing with the Klingons. I think. Yeah, I think so too. I think people don't give them enough credit for the Klingons. Yeah, I think a lot of people are just worried about the appearance. And people need to get over that quickly because guess what? They're not changing it. This is this is what's happening. So just get used to it and enjoy the actual content of the episodes. Right. Yeah, because once you get past the aesthetics, it's uh, great storytelling. It is. Speaking of uh, great storytelling, how about that betrayal that Vok received? from the other Klingons. Uh, yeah, that was... <laughs> that turned around pretty quickly once they got food. And I feel like that's pretty realistic. They were very desperate. Yeah. I think Cole was excellent in this episode. He was kneeling down and pretending to be humble. And he had this great line where he said, I hurled disrespect too quickly. And that's a very Klingon thing to say, I think. But I think Cole was being very deceptive, like what we've seen Klingons in the original series act. Right. And, you know, he's House Kor, and Kor was one of the original series Klingons. So I feel that it kind of fits with Kor's character that we at least saw in the original series. He was kind of a... A, a trickster, deceptive Klingon. Mm-hmm. And I feel Cole definitely used that to his advantage. But Volk was pretty pissed off that Cole took over his ship. But he, Volk did say himself when there was that ex- first exchange between them that he did say that anything of Takumba's 
was part of House Core and the Empire. So Cole just essentially called his bluff and made a power play. Mm -hmm. So Vogue can be pissed off, but he kind of set himself up for that, I feel. Right. Volk was probably just happy to have, you know, more Klingons there to help them and feed them. Yeah, and, I mean, it was pretty clear when we last saw Cole that he did not like Volk at all. And he really wasn't up for Takumba's, like, kind of his preaching and all that stuff. Right. So, I think it shows that Volk is still naive and he has a lot to learn. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's what Laurel is going to provide. So let's talk about them for a second. Yes, so definitely interesting pairing of of these two characters, I thought. Now, uh, Laurel mentions that she's of these two houses, and her mother gave her a bathlet to uh, stab at her heart to uh, basically decide decide which house she belonged to. Now, I wonder if she grew up feeling like an outcast because she was uh, being pulled by these these two houses. And I wonder if, because she felt like an outcast, she relates to Volk, who is definitely an outcast in the Klingon society. I definitely think that's the case, especially when she said that House Mokai was seen as the house of deceivers and tricksters and liars Mm-hmm. So, I think just from that sense, half of her feels very conflicted and like an outcast. And her other side, her other house, is part of Takumba's house. And she said to Voke that she was able to find a bridge to succeed. And she's trying to teach that lesson to Voke. And that was the whole point why they got the warp reactor, was that she was basically telling Vogue to suck up his pride and use the resources that they have right in front of them to achieve a greater picture. Right, I thought that was a great scene. Yeah, that was excellent. So it was even brought up in the episode when they were dealing with the reactor. Vogue was saying, why would you even trust me? I was essentially a nobody to Takumba. And... She said that she didn't want to lead. She wants to be the one supporting the the victor, so to speak. And I think that ties in with House Mokai, where she has the freedom to use those deceptive tricks, to be a spy for her lord, quote-unquote. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was great when she's building up everything with Volk and... We see all these definite hints at flirtation. They were talking really close. There was those looks that they shared. And that is what made her seemingly betrayal so great. Like when she just walked over and grabbed one of those weird-looking drumsticks. Right. And she seemed like she was completely on Cole's side, and she handed him the drive. And it made that betrayal or that seemingly betrayal, that much more convincing. And it shows that's the power of House Mokai. She was able to deceive Cole to get what she wants. I definitely like the chemistry. I hope we definitely see more of these characters. Oh, we're going to, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. 
it'll just be great to see how this all plays out. Yeah. Now, lastly, we have the most, or at least one of the most impactful emotionally parts of the story, which is Captain Giorgio's last will and testament. And it was great because when Tilly first bought Burnham the case, and when Burnham found out that it was her last will and testament, I love the reaction. She just shoved it underneath her bunk and just got out of there. Yeah. And I feel that's very realistic considering emotionally all that she's been through. Because if you look at the timeline of this episode, this episode is literally like the next day from episode three. Right. Because we had Saru mention that she should have been on the prison transport yesterday, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Right. So these emotions are still very raw for her. So I feel that was very realistic that she didn't want to deal with it at that time. Right. And I like that it was Tilly again, who encouraged her. She's like, well, you're the, you're a person that's not afraid of anything. You've tamed this amazing creature. You're earning people's respect. I think you can handle this. And it was that encouragement where she finally realized that she needs to begin the grieving process if she hasn't done so already. Because she still has a lot of guilt to unpack. Right. And not unlike a scene that we saw in The Next Generation where we have a hologram of Tash or Yar talking to crew members, her friends. Mm -hmm. I told Ashley, my wife, right before she opened the the container, that was going to be the telescope. (laughs) I had a feeling too, especially when she said, oh, it's been passed down through my family for centuries. I was like, okay, what does she like? She likes telescopes. There it is. I'm going to have to compare if it's the same telescope that was used in her ready room on the Shenzhou. Mm. That means someone grabbed it when they got off the ship. Oh, I would assume that like a a ship came to evacuate. Obviously, a ship came to evacuate them. Right. So I feel like the ship was dead in the water, but I think that they were able to get everything off that was of necessity. Except the warp core, apparently. Well, (laughs) why take the warp core if we're going to leave the ship? Why not just blow the ship up? <laughs> uh, Unless yeah, they guess. thought it could be salvaged later. I, I don't know. Uh, uh, maybe. Or maybe they knew the Klingon ship was there and they didn't want to stay too long, I guess. I, I don't know. Yeah, that could be there. I feel like we're, we're going to get more answers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the continuity in this episode. Even when they said Corvan 2... As soon as they said that, I instantly went to Memory Alpha mm-hmm. when I was watching it. Because I was like, oh, wait, that sounds familiar. And sure enough, Corvan 2 was previously mentioned in The Next Generation, the episode New Ground, which stated that Corvan Gilvo was on the verge of extinction due to extensive industrial pollution on that planet, matching the information given in this episode that Corvan 2 is a major industrial hub, its mines producing 40% of the Federation's entire dilithium supply. And then we have the end transmission scene at the end of the distress call from Corvan 2, 
which heavily referenced the cover of the Star Trek Starfleet technical manual, both in the logo and the font used. I love that. As a graphic design nerd, I instantly recognized what that was. And I was so giddy because I'm like, wow, they're really using previous designs for these screens and stuff. And it was, it's fantastic because it really ties in that visual continuity that we love. Right. And I think this is the first time that it's been, the logo was actually used in Star Trek, like officially. Yes, because that technical manual was not official. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'm glad that they're bringing that type of stuff into Star Trek. It's it's definitely cool. It's unique. To me, I didn't uh, connect the two. I definitely saw that it was a different logo. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely interesting. For those who don't know, one side of the olive branch is a male face, and the other olive branch is a female face. Mm Mm-hmm which kind of reflects uh, in Star Trek VI when the Chancellor, well, not she wasn't Chancellor at the time, but the Chancellor's daughter says that the Federation is a homo sapiens only club. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely interesting. So, Eric, what were your thoughts on the episode as a whole? So this show is definitely moving at a very fast pace. Like I mentioned before, we're already getting answers to mysteries that were brought up in the last episode. And I think this is good because we won't have long drawn out mysteries like other shows like Lost, where they have all these big open-ended questions and build up this mystery only to find out that the writers are making it up as they go along and they don't have the answers. It feels like everything is carefully plotted out in these episodes so far. Right. I think that might be bad because it might make the solutions seem too convenient. Like I said earlier, it just seemed like everything snapped into place within the time limit and they were able to save the day. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like, okay, so this war has been going on for six months, but is this going to be a situation because there was only a day that took place between the third episode and the fourth. So really two, two days have passed and it seemed like they're making all this progress. So, you know, we've got this war going on for six months and then suddenly Burnham's recruited and we win the war in a month. Like, is, is that what the story is going to be? Cause I don't think that would be realistic either. Right. I doubt I, I hope not, and I don't think that would happen. I just think that these two episodes are so close together because you want to have or or show Saru's response to Burnham being still on the ship. No, I, I totally get that, but they've already solved the mystery of the tardigrade in a day, essentially. Right. So... We have those previews for the next episode where Lorca's captured. We don't know how he's captured. We don't know why he's captured. But if he is captured, and I feel like it might be a flashback just because of everything with the eyes. So I feel like this flashback in this next episode might 
set up this the next part of the story to come along. Right. But I definitely want a cushion of time between the next couple episodes. Because I feel like it'll be more realistic. Maybe we could see the crew soften a bit more towards Burnham. Mm -hmm. Because I I did like the fact that people were still giving her dirty looks the next day. Yeah. Yeah. So that's very consistent. I do like that. I don't want the show to move so fast in terms of, like, the timeline where it makes Burnham seem like the magical person that was the key to everything even though she started it. And I'm afraid that that is, might be what's happening mm-hmm. just so she can be redeemed for the rest of the series. But I don't know. We'll, we'll just have to see, but overall this episode was very well done. Yeah, no, I agree. I thought this episode seemed more like a traditional Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. The opening sequence where we have the uniform being sequenced. Oh, Talk about amazing visual effects. Yeah. When that happened, I was like, what the hell kind of planet is this? Like, <laughs> right, right. Where the hell are we? Right. And when it pans out and it's her duty uniform, I was just like, oh, very well done, Star Trek. Right. Very interesting. She doesn't get a badge. Well, I like that it said no rank, right. you know, temporary assignment, no rank. Right, I thought it was interesting that she didn't get a one with just a blank one like we, we're going to get when we go out and buy our badges. <laughs> well, I think it just shows that technically she's still not a part of Starfleet. Right. I think if you have the badge, it's like a police badge. You're part of Starfleet. Yeah. And this was really just like, nope, you're still bottom of the barrel. Right. No, that's so I, I like that. I like that. Yeah. And like we said earlier, this is creating ethical dramas uh, that we've dealt with in other series with very Star Trek. So that that's good. Oh, I love it. I love that this is that this feels like classic Trek. Star Trek has always dealt with moral uh, implications and uh, ethical dilemmas and animal cruelty is certainly high up mm-hmm. on that list. Uh, you know, we've seen it with classic episodes like devil in the dark and like we mentioned before equinox Mm -hmm. so yeah this is just following in the footsteps of great star trek and i think discovery is a good show it's just Mm -hmm. i have concerns with the pacing where i just don't want it to go so fast that it's almost too convenient right now we don't have this listed but do you have any predictions for the show yeah you know, we heard that Mud is going to be in, I think, at least five episodes, mm. which is a significant chunk of it. Right. So I think he almost might be a consultant on the Discovery because he might have information pertaining to the Klingons because somehow he's he's muddled in their affairs and he's been captured by the Klingons. Mm. So... Obviously, if he's in this this brig with Lorca, I think that the Lorca thing is a flashback, and okay. that's where he meets Mud. He gets rescued by Starfleet, and then when you get back to the non-flashback parts, 
they come across Harry Mudd in some way. And Lorca's like, oh, great, now I have to deal with this guy again. But he has information that I need. So I definitely feel that we're going to get an answer as to why Lorca's eye condition is the way it is. Uh And I think that'll take place in the next episode, and it will be a flashback. I really can't predict farther than that, because I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. And the only thing I can glean from this season on Discovery is at some point Starfleet is going to get into negotiations with the Klingons because we've got that one-on-one fight with Burnham and Cole mm-hmm. where she picks up the Batleth. We see Admiral Cornwall like do a Kirk double fist thing against Laurel. So at some point the Admiral even gets on on the action. Yeah. So I feel like things are getting set up really well. And we're only four episodes into it. We've got 11 more. Right. And I think this show has the potential to tell some really great stories. The fact that we're getting the mirror universe in an upcoming episode or two is fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I really want to know what happens there. My prediction is that, you know, the spore drive will somehow gain them access to the mirror universe and they realize how dangerous it is. And because it's a top secret classified ship anyway, that's why that information will get buried. And then you're still within the canon that Kirk and crew think that this is a new thing. Right. And enterprise already did the mirror universe episode by having the full episode within the mirror universe. There was no crossover. So it never violated Canon. Right. So there's definitely ways that they can play around with it. And I'm very intrigued if the rumor that the Lorca that we're seeing right now is from the mirror universe. I think that would be a very great twist Mm -hmm. if done properly. Yeah. I think that, would be cool and he seem i mean the character doesn't seem like a typical starfleet officer and maybe that is because he's from a, the murray universe right but that means if you know if the real Lorca comes back is he going to be like a nice and cuddly starfleet captain because <laughs> i don't feel that jason isaacs would do that you know what i mean mm. well maybe so- maybe just a little softer yeah, maybe the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, right. or the mirror in this case. Uh, my prediction is yeah. that Burnham will be uh, pardoned. Oh, there's no doubt that they're going that way. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't really that big of a mutiny, if you think about it. Yeah, it was a mutiny of one. <laughs> a mutiny of one, and it didn't really go too far, and it seemed like the captain, at least after the initial battle seem to trust Burnham again. Yeah, but then she died. And yeah, so, I mean... <laughs> if... Standing up for Burnham. Right, right. So, if she didn't die, do you think she would have been brought on charges? That's a good question, because I think she would have been reprimanded. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if they were successful in their mission... In capturing Takuma? Yeah, but... Even if they captured him, that would just make his followers even more determined to get him back, Mm. you know? So I think this war was inevitable from the start, 
it was just unfortunate that Michael got pinned with it. Right. Even after seven years, Philippa was still ready to throw her in the brig because it was so unlike her character and it was really against all of Starfleet rules. I mean, she assaulted an officer. Come on. Right. Her captain. So either way, I think she would have got reprimanded somehow, even if it was like a maybe like a Voyager Ensign Paris situation <laughs> where he bumped down. You right. know what I mean? Right. She definitely would have served some time in the brig, for sure. And it would have been on her record. Right. It was only worse because her captain got killed, and Mm -hmm. then they're drug into a war. Right. So why don't we move into the final segment of the show, Subspace Channels. And this week was a Twitter poll. Will you watch Star Trek Discovery? What, What were the options for people? Our options are immediately, when released, during the week... Next, we have binge when season is over, and finally, wait for the Blu-ray. Well, I chose immediately when released. <laughs> As did I, and and I also watch it during the week. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because I I've watched all of these episodes at least two or three times. I I tried to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, at least catch up maybe tonight. I forgot to mention, I think the best line was when there was the interaction. And we got to meet, we didn't bring this up, but we got to meet Dr. Uh, uh, Kubler in this episode, mm-hmm. who is Stamets' romantic partner. Right. And we got a Tellerite mention. You know, he was fixing his nose and he said, you know, hold still or you'll end up looking like a Tellerite. Oh, right. Which I thought was hilarious. Mm-hmm. And then I think the best line was in that scene where Lorca's telling, and Lorca's a dick. I mean, he played that whole the distress call to the whole ship Yeah. to make a point. Dude's a dick. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when Stamets was saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to take all my stuff and blah, blah. He's like, well, get off the ship if you don't like it, but it's Starfleet property. Yeah. And you know, he was, as he was walking away, the doctor was like, well, wait, you've got some blood on your face. And then Lorca interjects and on your hands, get it done. And I thought that was such a brilliant line. Yeah. That was such a great interaction. Mm -hmm. So yes, definitely rewatch the episode. I will. And it probably will be uh, Friday that I get the chance to do so. Okay. Uh, did anyone comment? Uh, yes. So we have uh, two comments from Facebook. We have Kathy Mullins who says, wait for the DVD. It'll be fun to binge watch. And my wife, Ashley Wong Gallo, who says immediately. Yes. So for our uh, Twitter poll results, 45% of you who answered said that they would watch immediately when released. Next, 27% said during the week. And then tying for third with 14%, binge when season is over and wait for the Blu-ray. I think that's a pretty even spread. Well, I mean, if you add up those two options, like binge or wait, 
that's 28%, and that's the same as during the week. Right. I like that a little bit more than two-thirds of the people said, you know, immediately or during the week. So that's a good sign. Uh, Yeah, and that kind of plays out the way I would imagine the people who listen to the show uh, would vote. Thank you all for voting in our first Subspace Channel's Twitter poll. Cool. Yeah, I think that <laughs> I think that went well and a lot faster than reading individual responses. For sure. So, thank you all for listening this week, Eric. If we were to look for you on the internet, where would we find you? You can find me everywhere at Trucky B four seven. Just look me up there. And, well, you'll mostly find me on Twitter, so uh, check me out on Twitter at TrekkieB47, and check out my Power Rangers podcast also on the Four-Eyed Radio Network, Ranger Command Power Hour at Ranger Command PH. Very good, and if you were to look for me, you can find me on Twitter mostly, I guess Instagram as well, at Nova Charter. Woo-woo! Woo. So, until next week, my friends, live long and prosper. Peace and long life. You have been listening to the Starfleet Escape Podcast on the Four-Eyed Radio Network. You can find us on the web at sfescapepod.com. Follow us on Twitter at sfescapepod. Like us on Facebook com slash sf escape pod and add us to your circle on google plus by going to google dot sf escape pod dot com <laughs>